the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Alrighty, it's Andy Lockwood from Lockwood College Prep, and what follows this introduction is a recording that I somehow managed to pull off. I'm patting myself on the back for um, uh, successfully recording my workshop that I gave at a local library. It's about 10 minutes down the road from my office, the Manhasset Public Library. And the interesting thing to me that made it so enjoyable about this workshop was the questions that I got from the crowd, which was uh, relatively small, so everyone got a chance to ask questions, were on topics that I don't normally cover in my webinars or other uh, seminars. So if you have attended one of my other webinars or listened to our, our materials uh, some other way, there's definitely some overlap, but there's also some new stuff. So for example, um, there was an Asian American mom who asked me a question about admissions, and I ended up delving into a very non-politically correct answer that was, judging by her facial expression, a lot more than she bargained for when she asked me the question, but I think she found it valuable. And there was some other stream of consciousness stuff about admissions in general, particularly the end of affirmative action, according to the Supreme Court, and what that means for colleges who are still, still seeking to diversify. Uh, we spent a fair amount of time talking about how to obtain financial aid, what the new changes were that are that are pending as I recorded this and as I did the workshop, which is the middle of October 2023, uh, because the FAFSA, the main application, still isn't out yet. So I talked about that. I talked about sibling uh, discount, quote-unquote, that is no longer going to be in effect, but that may not be the end of the road, as well as changes um, that will could also impact you if you're um, a divorced family or a business owner and a lot more stuff. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it valuable. If you do, I would really appreciate it if you could um, give us a great rating. Somehow that uh, gives us higher visibility and good podcast juju <laughs> to, to um, encourage me to continue giving out this information. And of course, subscribe wherever you're listening to this, if it's uh, Spotify or Apple or something like that. Okay, enjoy this presentation. Let me know what you think. You can always uh, shoot me an email. My email address is in the notes here on this, uh, uh, on this entry in the podcast. Okay. Welcome to the College Financial Aid and College Admissions Secrets Workshop. Um, I call it secrets in, in air quotes because I'm not really going to be telling you anything that's... Um, not true or that's not known. It's just that I think a lot of stuff gets lost in the shuffle. And probably a lot of that has to do with lack of um, information readily available in schools. Then, of course, there's the you know, parent chit chat and rumors and urban legends and, and things like that. So um, I'm just going to be you know, sharing my, my experiences you know, based on you know, working with clients for more than 21 years as a college advisor. It's totally up to you guys if, you know, if you think that what I'm saying is, you know, true or not true. You can believe, believe whatever you want. I'm just going to give you my experiences and you can have your, your own, your own truths, right? I will say as a warning that 
I'm not always exactly sure what's going to come out of my mouth, and it's most of it is going, or a lot of it will will contradict what you, you may have heard from a, a guidance counselor or not heard from from a guidance counselor. So I'm not saying it to be offensive. I'm not saying it to make fun of people. I'm just you know sort of giving you my personal lay of the land. Um, along those lines, I've written a few books, and my most re <laughs> most recent one is called. The Pocket Guide to Surviving Your Guidance Counselor's Lack of Advice. So that is a little negative, but I, I do feel sincerely that uh, most guidance counselors are, are overwhelmed. They're not, they're not trained in financial aid at all, and their, um, their information about college admissions, you know, what it takes to, to get in, I think is usually very myopic. It's very fixated on you know, what they know from their own high school, when the reality is is that when any of our kids, I, I have four, I have, I have three in college right now, <clears throat> by the way. So when any of our kids are, are applying to college, you're, you're competing with not your high school, you're competing with kids all over the country. And that's a, a different lay of the land than what you might see in Naviance, if, if you are familiar with that program that most high schools use. I'll tell you right now, this is gonna. This may be one of these things that that contradicts what you thought you heard or thought you knew. There are no quotas at any given high school. So a couple of years ago, when you know Manhasset sent one kid to BC, I think Garden City might have done the same thing. It, it's not because they had a bad year with you know with Boston College. It's just that the kids from Manhasset were competing with people from all over the country. Plus, the admissions landscape has changed. You may have noticed. Uh, there's a lot more emphasis on diversity. So I'm going to be talking a little bit, a little bit about that and what I mean specifically uh, by, by diversity. So I'm, I'm going to be touching a lot of um, controversial third rail type of uh, type of topics. It is a free workshop, so I, I can refund anyone who who's offended. See if they invite me back next year. Um, so, Joe, so just before we start, so how, uh, just so I, I have a better feel, so what grades are your, your kids in? Like, what, what, how about you guys? Junior? Junior? 11th grade? What? 10th. 10th? 10th. And you are a 10th grader, okay. 12th. 12th, okay. 12th? And where? Senior. Senior, okay, good. All Manhasset or different high schools? Shamanan, okay, good. All right. So I was going to talk a little bit about getting into college, then a little bit about paying for college. Is, is that... Okay with you guys? Um, and absolutely feel free to ask questions because this is a small group and I, I want to make sure you come out of here with the information that you were hoping to get. So, all right, so let's. Anyone care if I start with admissions or financial aid? I'll, I'll take a vote. I'll open it up to the. Uh, who, raise your hand if you want admissions. One, two, three, four. Okay. I think that carried the vote. It was a public ballot. All right, so so college admissions is uh, is kind of nuts right now, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense. Even though the raw statistics that get thrown around are are pretty crazy on on their surface. So what I mean by that is, and you may have the same experience that, that I've had. So. Um, I, I just had a couple of my friends from high school uh, visit me. I grew up in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, two miles away from Boston College. And they were hanging around with me this weekend. We're talking about college stuff, because we always do. 
can't get away from it. And um, we were talking about uh, Northeastern University. When we all, when, you know, my friends and I graduated high school, Northeastern admitted 90% of its, of its applicants. And last year, I think it was like 6.7%. And that's an extreme example of what's happened in the college landscape, but that's a, a, a common story. So the question that a lot of people have is like, well, how'd that happen, right? Um, a lot of it had to do with how these colleges marketed themselves. So you, you, you probably have a sense of this already, but colleges are businesses. And like any business, they have to get you know, revenue and customers, and that means you know, students to, to pay tuition. So Northeastern didn't invent this, but they, um, they sort of gamed the college rankings in order to increase their rank and get more applications. So I think last year they got some, something like 200,000 applications. Um, I'm sorry. 120,000 applications. They sent out more than 200,000 pieces of direct mail uh, every year, and and that's you know if you've ever wondered why you, you know if you have an 11th grader sometimes even earlier why they and you get inundated with brochures and um, and emails and sometimes texts and sometimes phone calls from you know a lot of schools that you've never heard of. It's because they are all buying this data from um, from the College Board. Actually, when you when you register for the SAT, on average, the College Board will sell each kid's name on uh, 18 times over their high school careers. So that is a big business for the College Board. They're not just providing the SAT; they're also selling data. So colleges will solicit applications. The more applications they get, the more selective they can be, and the higher their rankings. And one of the, the trends that has really uh, catalyzed that is the test optional trend. So every almost every college allows you to not submit your SAT or your ACT. And that's, on one hand, that in, in increases the amount of applications going in. But I will say, and I'll, I'll talk about this in, in a little bit, I will say that there is a, a difference between applying test optional and getting in test optional. So just because the college doesn't require SATs or ACTs doesn't mean that if you have a low score, then you might as well just take a shot at Harvard. But that, that seems to be what you know, a lot of people are doing in, in effect. <clears throat> so in general, even though the statistics, you know, like the Northeastern example, have dropped pretty precipitously, I do think that overall, Qualified kids still get into the schools that they should get into. That that's a, a generality. It doesn't happen, you know, every uh, for every kid for every school. In fact, what I've seen every year, including um, with my own kids, is that and you probably either experienced this or you, you know people who've done this. They you know they may get into you know a, a highly competitive school but get deferred or waitlisted at a slightly easier school. And that is usually because the easier school understands that 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 student is probably using that school as a safety school, and is, it doesn't want to waste a spot on admitting someone that they're not going to land as a paying student. 
It's called the yield. It's the ratio, the ratio of admitted students to kids who matriculate. And that's and that's not you know necessarily something you have to remember, but it does explain a lot of things about how the business of college works. And what I think is important is if you're you know if you, if you or your kids are you know applying to college, you have to treat this as if you're in business too. It's not just the colleges that are in business. You're in the business of understanding how to market yourself to these schools, how to stand out. You know, how to, in the example of Northeastern, how to say, yeah, I know you're getting 125,000 applications, but this is why you should choose me, even though my grades and my scores are basically the same as 50,000 other, other kids. <clears throat> and you're in business for um, getting money, you know, trying to trying to get uh, merit aid or or need-based aid or any type of money that that's out there. So, so what do admissions officers look at um, when they are evaluating someone's application? And I, you know, this this information is based on you know again real life stuff that um, I I experience. And it may be different than what you've heard at, at your high schools. But we've had, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 former admissions officers you know, work for me over the last seven years from schools like University of Chicago and um, Princeton and other places like that. <coughs> so I believe this, what I'm about to tell you. So at any given college, approximately uh, two-thirds of the incoming class is reserved for non-academic factors. So, so in other words, it's not just about your grades and your scores. 60% of the equation when they're looking at an application is based on academics. And there's a subset of that. That's your GPA, your rigor, which a lot of people overlook, meaning how many AP or IB classes you've taken, and test scores. If, if you're submitting your uh, submitting those, your SAT or your ACT. If you take away those test scores, that means the other two, just logically, the other two components take on more importance, your GPA and your rigor. So a lot of times when I'm working with, with clients, in, you know, if they're in like ninth or 10th grade and they're contemplating taking an AP um, and, and they get a, a bit of advice from their guidance counselor uh, you know, maybe you shouldn't st stress yourself out too much. It's going to be it's going to be a very hard year if you take you know five APs or something. And then they'll ask me, you know, what I think, and my answer is, well, what what colleges are you aspiring to, you know, gunning for? What colleges are you trying to get into? And if you're trying to get into the you know the elite schools, the Ivy and near Ivy type schools, what you have to understand is that you're competing with kids all over the country who have maxed out on their APs. So um, one of the Half Hollow Hills uh, schools, I think it's East, allows, uh, I've seen some of my clients take like 17 AP classes, which is insane. Um, you know, s schools in other districts don't offer as many. So th the point is that if you have a decent GPA and your rigor sort of, you know, in the median maybe, you know, maybe, um, maybe equal to the average of the other kids that you're competing with, but you don't submit your test scores, 
then that's, a school is probably not going to admit you, for the most part, unless there's some other reason you know, that they want to admit you. So I said before, the, the, the components or the split is 60% academic factors and 40% non-academic. So what is, what, you know, what's in that 40%? So there's stuff that you can control and there's stuff that you cannot control. So in, in, this, in the um, cannot control component, that's diversity. And what I mean very specifically is visual diversity. So, so basically, I'm not politically correct. Okay, so I, I think I think you, you get that by now. So, so visual diversity means do you look different? Not necessarily did you have some sort of disc discriminatory upbringing. I mean that that could be also mixed in there, but that's not what that's not what that means. So we have clients who actually um, two professors who who live in Newton and you know, where where I grew up who have have two kids. Um, they're both African American, and you know they're good students, but they weren't. You know, necessarily Ivy caliber kids, and the parents make like five hundred thousand dollars, and you know they live in an affluent uh, town. Newton's a lot like Manhasset, and they both you know were able to get into top choice schools that other kids with lesser grades and lesser scores were not able to get into. And I'm not editorializing. I'm not you know I'm not trying to um, talk about whether it's fair or not because I don't think this process is designed to be fair. So I don't I don't bother. I'd just rather live in reality. I don't I don't. I'm not trying to, you know, necessarily lobby for something, but um, that that you know that that is a big component. It's not a rubber stamp. If you're visually diverse, you don't automatically get in, but it's something that can put you over the edge. So too, if you're a recruited athlete, uh, that that's another you know way to put a thumb on the scale. You know, this this whole lawsuit that the Supreme Court just adjudicated a few months ago, involving one involved Harvard, one involved University of North Carolina. It was very interesting to see the criteria that the Harvard admissions officers used um, in terms of how they categorized th their applicants. And most of the recruited athletes that applied got in. They also tended to be white. They also tended to be from you know, wealthy families. And they also tended to have lower grades and lower scores as you know, the, the, the rest of the non-special categories. So it's visually diverse people, athletes, legacies at some schools, but that's sort of on its way out, you know, pe people whose uh, parents went to those schools. Some colleges care more about that than others, like Notre Dame, Harvard, those, those are very heavy on legacies. A lot of the other Ivies are, have done away with it or are doing away with it. And um, a lot of the big state schools don't really care so much about it. Um, and then there are other categories, uh, the development list. Anyone know what um, a development um, college development means? Anyone want to take a guess? I'll give a prize away. How's that? What's that? Like philanthropy. Yes. I'm going to give you a choice. Pocket guide to sur surviving your guidance counselor's lack of advice or how to get into your dream school without lying, bribing, or photoshopping. Okay. Big, big hand here. It's a standing up. Just, just don't look around. Um, <coughs> right. So, so the development lists are, um, are are families that are philanthropic and uh, are able to, you know, give um, significant amounts of funding to to these colleges. And the, you know, and again, I'm not. This is another area I'm not editorializing because. Um, 
50% of those funds go to expanding need-based financial aid programs in, in general. So, so it's a good thing. Uh, colleges need that to be able to fulfill their missions of, of, um, of, of educating uh, you know, low-income people. So also in that 40%, you know, so 60% academic, 40% non-academic. Also in that 40% are um, extracurriculars, your essays, your interviews, your teacher recommendations, and really everything else that has nothing to do with your, your grades. So let me talk for a little bit about extracurricular activities because that's another area where I think a lot of people are misguided. So what you, what you should be thinking about um, extracurricularly in terms of just from the narrow standpoint of what looks good for college, which is, th that's actually not how I think, what I think is what's going to be personally valuable to a student and then also will it look good for college. <clears throat> but just, just on that mercenary uh, laser focus on what looks good, there's really two types of activities that kids engage in. There's typical activities and atypical activities. So the typical activities, you know, are like the charity walk. Um, National Honor Society is a big one. So sometimes when, it, when, I'm, when I'm sitting with families for the first time and I said, you know, tell me about your extracurriculars, you know, if that's the first thing and, and the best thing out of someone's, <laughs> someone's mouth, that's not necessarily that compelling because uh, has anyone been to a National Honor Society um, induction ceremony? Just raise your hand if, if you have. Okay. So, did you look around and try to count like how many people actually made it in? Because I, you know, so so my <laughs> so my oldest, I have two boys and two girls. So my my oldest daughter, when when she made it into National Honor Society, I was like, oh, Lizzie, that is awesome. Congratulations, you made it into the top 70% of of North Shore High School. Right? It's it's a participation trophy. It's not going to get you into to college. I'm not saying don't pursue it. It's just not. You know, it's not it's not in that um, atypical category. So, <clears throat> what is atypical is, and I I hate this term. I'm just going to say it because you probably have heard it, uh, a passion project. You know, I'm passionate about lying on the couch and watching football on <laughs> on Sundays. I don't think that would get me into college, right? But but going deep in something where, where it shows that you're proactive and you take initiative and some leadership and you've stepped up, I don't care if you're passionate or not about it, but d doing those actions, those are the types of things that, that stand out. Um, and it's, not, it, it's, it's atypical. Most kids don't do that. So you know, when, I'm, when I'm talking to kids, I'm always trying to find something that they're already doing and then plus it or accentuate it somehow. So. Um, so I have a, a client this year who's, who's a senior actually at, at Manhasset, and she's an extreme go-getter. She's very involved with a lot of charity, charitable type things. And I said, well, and she's thinking about majoring in, in, um, in communications. And I said, oh, okay, well, as, as long as you're you know, doing these charitable events, and, she's, and she has an active role. She's not just passively participating. I said, well, why don't you document it? You know, why don't you... Uh, since you're already there, why don't you turn that into, you know, a vlog, you know, a video blog where you're describing what you're doing, you're trying to get more visibility for it. Um, why don't you do a bunch of interviews of the people that the charity's impacting? You know, may, maybe interview some of the um, some of the board members. And so she did that, and she has uh, quite a bit of of content. And I said, okay, well, why don't we 
transcribe those interviews and um, edit them and then turn each of those into a chapter and then you know, turn it into a book that goes up on Amazon. Right? So it's, it was basically, it does involve more work, but it's taking something she was already doing and accentuating it. And you know, if you um, apply to college and you, and you have a book that you've written and you send it in and you know, the admissions officers look, you know, open it and they're like, oh, you know, that, that's showing up differently. That, that is standing out in a way that most kids will not do. And that's just one example that just, just um, came, came to mind. There, there are many examples. <clears throat> Any questions on this stuff so far? You guys awake? Yeah. So the diversity, the question was about diversity. How's that changing after the Supreme Court lawsuit? My sense is that it's not going to change except that colleges are figuring out how to, how to create diversity without getting sued. So one of the uh, doors that was opened by um, Chief Justice Roberts seemed to indicate that it was still okay to ask um, people who are diverse to describe their backgrounds in an essay, particularly how they may have overcome some obstacles or, or adversity. So. What a lot of colleges did in the in the couple of years leading up to this decision, and then they really st stepped on the gas right after the decision was was pumped out a bunch of essay prompts about what community are you from, you know, describe your diversity basically. <coughs> so there's a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of Irish kids and Greek kids and Italian kids <laughs> trying trying to come up with. You know, ways to, ways to show that they're they're diverse now, which I, I personally think is funny. But they're you know they have everyone has some experience that is worthy of of talking about in an essay. It may not necessarily be what the colleges have in mind um, as they you know they they recruit visual diversity, but that's that's how it's changing. I'm sorry, are you saying that the, the essay? By the way, I'm not texting. I'm writing notes about what you're saying. I'm, <laughs> I'm probably just so. Are you blogging? Yeah. yeah. I'm not, yeah. I'm Okay. Bring anything to write with, but so you said that the essay prompts, like what community you're from, the colleges are framing those questions so they can like sneakily gather if you're diverse, or the students are trying to incorporate and pretend that they're more diverse than they are. What like what were you saying? Then? So okay, so the question was just to clarify, are colleges finding out how people are diverse in a different way through the essay prompts, or are kids proactively offering that information and the answer is yes to both. So there are more essays now asking about your background and your diversity and there are more kids trying to bend over backwards and describe <laughs> describe their diversity. I have, I have one client right now. This this is this is borderline stuff I shouldn't say right now, but um, I won't say any names, but she has one last name and then midway through this this process, she has one last name which is not particularly diverse. She doesn't live around here. And then midway through the process, 
I noticed that she started using her uh, a middle name which is Latino sounding, right? <laughs> so I so I said, you know, uh, what's up with that? And she actually does have um, Latino heritage in her in her uh, background, legitimate background. Um, but that's you know that's an example of people. I, I always wondered how. Um, how many of the, how much of the revenue from like 23andMe in those places is is based on you know pre-college applications? So so, so uh, I, I I haven't found any studies on that, but I, I did try briefly. So anyway, so so colleges you know are still going after diversity, and, and some of the stories, by the way, of, of how they do this are are ridiculous. So so a couple years ago, there was a a story in one of the trade publications that that I read, where there was a lawsuit from an African American kid, and it was based on a friend of his who said, "Hey, I saw you were in the college brochure. I don't remember what the college was, but it was a, it was like a Big Ten, uh, you know, big athletic type of college." <coughs> and the the kid was like, "Oh, I, uh, that, you know, that's cool. Uh, where you know, where was the picture taken?" And the other guy said, oh, it looked like you were at the, you know, the basketball game. And the African-American kid says, well, I, wait, I never went to a basketball game. <laughs> so long story short, they photoshopped him in to the brochure for the college to, to show more diversity. And that's, n that's not uncommon, un uh, unfortunately. So it's pretty pathetic, I think. <clears throat> anyway, so we've got grades, academic stuff. You've got non-academic stuff. There is a phenomenon, getting back to the whole test optional thing, of you know, people who have um, good grades but they don't test well, and I get a lot of questions about that, like you know why why does that happen sometimes? Uh, one, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is the case across the board, but there there is widespread grade inflation at at many high schools, which results in I think a lot of kids feeling like you know they 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 should be testing up here commensurate with with their GPAs. Most of the kids I meet right now, for, for the last 15 years or so, I haven't come across anyone with a C average in, in 15 years. I mean, when we were growing up, you know, people got Cs, but now a C is like an 84. So that's, that's usually the worst that I've seen. And, and basically everyone has like between a 92 and a 99 that, that, that I see. So that's just anecdotal. That's, you know, I can't, uh, I can't um, give you m more statistics on that, but the average grade, um, in, in college has also been inflated too. So the standardized tests, you know, were designed to try to even that stuff out. And there's biases in, in those also, you know, you, but, but um, so there's no perfect way to do it. But the correlation of how well kids do in college, it's something like, you know, b your, your GPA correlates like, like 34 um, percent and, this, and your test scores correlate 33 percent. Of, of the time of how of how well you'll do in college, so they are they are pretty close, even though everything is is flawed. <clears throat> There's no perfect way. But in general, admissions officers would rather see test scores than not. And if you're not going to submit your test scores, <clears throat> then you know my my rule of thumb is you know each college publishes their range, the 25 percentile to 75th percentile. So when people ask me, you know, I had two kids ask me this today who are getting ready to submit their applications, you know, should I submit or not? And we, had, we went through each college on her list, and I said, okay, at this school, you're in that range, I would submit. At this school, you're below that range, I would not submit. And, and I've had, this is another area where I've had um, sort of alternate um, 
bits of advice with guidance counselors. Actually, uh, a kid last year, a Shamanad kid, who I think he had a 30 uh, on his ACT, maybe a 31, he, and he was in the range for his top choice college, which was University of Miami. And his guidance counselor at, at Shamanad said, don't, don't submit that because you don't want to give them a reason to reject you because it wasn't at the upper end. I think the upper end might have been a 33 or something. And, and, I, and so the mom said, you know, what do you, what do you think? I said, well, if you don't submit your score, wh you know, what are the, what's the implication? It's not that, you, you know, they were too high and you didn't want to show off, <laughs> right? It's like the implication is that you were not in the range. So, you know, long story short, he ended up submitting his scores. Uh, he probably earned a decision also. I think the counselor told him not to do that. And then he got in and he got like $25,000 a year as a scholarship. So that doesn't, doesn't always work out that way, but my, my rule of thumb is if you're in that range, submit. If you're, not, if you're below the range, don't, because you don't want to give them a reason to deny you. doesn't mean you're going to get in, but I just don't want to give a, a reason to deny you. So Question. Do Okay, so the question is, do schools know if you've taken the test? They don't know that you've taken the test, but if you're, you know, if you're applying to college and you're from a, a middle, upper class, high income, any of those areas, it's presumed that you've taken it like three times. Not, yeah. Yes, question. So for AP score, what would you consider uh, acceptable to submit? What's an acceptable AP score? Yeah. Fours and fives are worthy of submission, oh, okay. I think. Yes? And on the test scores, do you see any difference between like how they weight ACT versus SAT? You just said that you just gave out a ACT scores. Is that what most kids take now? Or? Um, so the question is SAT versus ACT. Colleges are agnostic. They'll, they'll accept either. It used to be the SAT was more for kids on the East Coast and the West Coast, and the ACT was more for kids in the middle of the country. And then the ACT took a lot more market share away from the SAT, and there actually uh, about six years ago there were more kids taking the SAT, uh, taking the ACT than the SAT. And now it's a, I think the SAT is now uh, slightly um, more popular, but colleges will accept either. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Any other questions? Good questions. Yeah, I wouldn't see. I, I want you to ask me questions because I would not have covered that. So I, I appreciate that. I want to make sure you're getting, you know, what you want to hear, not what I want you to hear. Um, oh, oh, here's another thing. That no, another thing that no one really talks about, which I find interesting. Um, I was, and I was just paying attention to this because um, it, it, was a, it was a study from Cornell. My, my youngest daughter goes to Cornell. So I'm all over all the crap that comes out, that comes out from there. And um, they, they did a study, and this, I think this is the same for most Ivy and similar schools, 80% of the accepted kids come from feeder high schools, F-E-E-D-E-R, you know, schools that have relationships with those colleges. And that was defined as uh, having, I think, um, 30 kids a year apply, or, or I can't remember what the number was, but it was something pretty high, a, f a feeder high school. And that's usually like the private high schools. You know, it's usually like a Shamanad or a Andover or an Exeter or, you know, whatever, Fields and Dalton. <coughs> um, that's a big deal in terms of, you know, there are only so many spots at any given college. So 
if you're not a visually diverse person, if you're not a legacy, if you're not a recruited athlete, if you're not from a feeder high school, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you're looking at, okay, uh, that school admits, you know, that Ivy League school admits 10% of its raw applicants, but you're not in those categories, your, your real chances are like less than 1%. Because that, that, you know, that 10% is that raw number that factors in all those people um, and a chunk of them tend to have lower grades and lower scores. So if you're looking at, you're, you're trying to handicap your chances of getting in, you might say, okay, well, you know, my grades, my GPA is right in the middle, my SAT or my ACT is right in the middle, but you have to remember that that meeting that's reported includes the legacies, the athletes, the, you know, pe people who drag down those, um, those statistics. So to feel good about your chances of getting in to these schools, you need to be at the upper end of whatever the median is. And that's another reason why people are stunned every year that, that they didn't get into what they thought were their, you know, their shoe-in colleges because, or their safety schools. It's because they don't understand the competition. They don't understand exactly you know, who, who, who else is applying and what they look like. <coughs> Pretty much every college, for the most part, every college will report their range, their, their 25 percentile to 75 percentile scores. And, um, and it's, it's easy to see where, where you fall in. That, that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's usually a known thing. There's a lot of black box unknown things in this process, but that's, that's one of the things that's relatively knowable. Yeah. On which thing? You would think that if 30 kids from Manhattan applied to Cornell, that, yeah. that would be a bad thing. But maybe it's a good thing. Or they bring out no public schools to the feeder schools. You're asking about the feeder schools? Um, most public schools, unless they're huge, are not usually feeder schools. I mean, I, I can make the argument that Manhattan sense a lot, you know, in the past was a feeder for Boston College. Uh, Cornell, Notre Dame, you know, schools like that. Um, the public schools that are feeder schools are generally like Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, you know, some of the big, big ones. But it's, it's it is mostly private, but some, some public. Yeah. Doesn't mean you should move. I mean, you know, it just <laughs> it, it just means that. I'm just giving you the bigger picture of actually what's you know what's considered in admissions. Okay, so so um, just to pick up on what I was saying about typical activities versus atypical activities. Ideally, when you are you know when you're when you're filling out your college applications, which most of my clients have already done and submitted, but there's still a few stragglers right now for class of 2024. You know, you're, you're summing up your entire f uh, body of work from ninth grade forward. The time to think about what that's going to look like is not when you're filling out your college applications. It's not when you have your college meeting with your guidance counselor at, toward the end of 11th grade. It's, it's much earlier. By the way, that doesn't mean you should hire a college advisor in ninth grade because a lot of kids just aren't ready to, to, you know, to be coached and to take that advice. 
but the time to think about that is is import is is earlier, you know, sooner rather than later, because what you want to think about is what I I refer to in shorthand as CASA, C-A-S-A, which stands for Consistent Atypical Student Activities. So we already talked about, you know, typical versus atypical. It's great to be in a club. It's better to you know, be the head of the club or even to found a club to do stuff. Consistent is the, is the key thing. You don't want to just you know, wake up in 11th grade. That's what my wife and I refer to as the born again junior phenomenon. When, you know, when, when someone has nothing to speak of in ninth and 10th grades, and then all of a sudden they have 16 activities and they've run a, a, a charity three on three basketball tournament to raise money to stamp out autism, breast cancer, and, and a disease to be named later. You know, it's, it's really more about um, doing stuff early on. And it doesn't have to be the same stuff. I mean, consistent means more about your effort. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you've done one project for all four years. And the earlier you think about this, the, the, the better the, the payoff will be um, once you are writing up your activities section on the common application. Uh, a lot of my students will do a resume because they can't fit in everything onto their common application. You're only allowed space for 10 activities. So you, you know, colleges are looking for kids who are involved and who you know, stepped up and took leadership roles. And, and just one, one, one more comment. That doesn't mean, you, you, you think that hearing people like me talk about this, that everyone applying to college is a leader and there are no followers. You know, applying to college, that, that you know, that's uh, not exactly true. But there's different types of leadership. You know, there's the public type of leadership where you're the captain of every team and the president of every club. That's fine. But there's other ways of showing leadership, and you know, the the synonym for that is really is really having impact or um, initiative, showing initiative and doing stuff. But you don't have to be a politician or something like that. Question. Uh, you're asking about the resume? Right, so, so the Common App allows you to fill in 10 activities, and then some colleges will offer you the ability to submit a resume. The ones that don't offer the ability, you can send the resume um, yourself. So, so this, uh, this actually happened last year to my, my daughter, Sammy, who's the, the one at Cornell. So she, she had an, a pretty long resume. It was like five pages or something ridiculous. <coughs> and, and not really fluffy either. And um, uh, we, she, you know, we did just that. We sent it up to all these colleges, and then Cornell wrote her back and said, by the way, we don't accept resumes by email. And so she was you know, really mad at me. She's like, well, why did I do that? I'm like, well, depending on how aggressive you are, what they, if you read what they said to you, they said they don't accept resumes by email. So if you're feeling you know, a little... A little uh, Assertive, you know, maybe we want to just send it up a different way. And I don't know if she did or not, actually, but I, I think she did. But I think it's good to do because, again, it's it's a way to show up differently. Like if you have 50,000 kids who have the same grades and the same scores, and you're in the sea of sameness, the real question that they're asking you on the application, even though it's technically not on the application, the real question is why you? Why should we take you compared to all these kids who look the same? And that 
answer starts as soon as your foot hits the high school hallway floor. That, that's how you have to be thinking. It's a, it's a, that's why I say this is not a meritocracy to get into these schools. It's how you market yourself. And, and <clears throat> not, not to get too off the beaten path here, but to me, the reason that's so important is because <coughs> that's not really just a get into college skill. That's a how to be successful in life skill because the people who are the most successful in life have figured out, for, for the most part, ways to advocate for themselves in their own ways that's congruent with their own personalities. It's not that they're necessarily the best you know, doctor, the best lawyer, or the best whatever. They might be technically great at what they do, but if no one knows about it, like who cares? So, so it's the people who understand how to be persuasive and, um, and, and, ex and explain, this is why you should pay attention to me. I think those are the people who are the most successful, and that's the skill you need to get into college. So it's a good time to start doing that. Question? So the question is, do, do college admissions officers really look at a book or anything else that you send in the mail to them? My answer is that they are all aware of it. They all see everything. It's extremely unlikely that they're going to actually open a book or, or read it or read more than a couple of pages. But it, it has that thud factor. I mean, you're, sh you're showing up differently than everyone else. You know, this, this, is, this is impactful. So... Look, in general, admissions officers might have, you know, eight minutes to read every application. And that's not every essay. That's every application. That's the essays, the transcripts, the recommendations, the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's extremely unlikely they're going to read a, you know, 125-page book. But they'll notice it. Um, so the question is, is it, is it possibly going to annoy them if you send them additional information? I, I guess that's a risk, but I think it depends on how you do it. Um, I think the way that <coughs> most kids do it is, that, that, I, that I see, is, you know, I, I wrote about this on my resume, here's something else, please add this to my file. Not, I'm so great, I'm a best-selling author, you know, it's, it's, so, so to some extent, when you're applying to college, you are bragging. I mean, so, some, so I, was, I was talking to um, a, a kid today, and she was just named to some sort of, um, it wasn't NISMA, I think it was Allstate uh, for singing. And she said, you know, should I put that on my, you know, on my uh, application? I said, yeah, of course. She goes, you don't think that's bragging? I'm like, well, <laughs> what are you doing when you apply to college? I mean, you're, 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 you're uh, in, in this case, I said, I, I don't really think it's braggy. I don't know if I'm the right person that, you know, to, to, to ask either. I don't know if I'm the litmus test here. But if you're just stating a fact that you accomplished something along with other accomplishments on your application that asks you specifically list your accomplishments, I don't, I don't think it's bragging. But um, I, I think if you do it in an arrogant way or pushy way, then that could cross a line. But I think admissions officers for the most part understand that kids are desperate to please them and to show off and because that's what the application process really is it's you know show off to me but but don't be too much of a show off you know so i would always i would i personally would err on the side of um 
showing off. <laughs> but that's me. Yeah, there's a, I, just, I just read a book uh, this past year. It was by a University of Michigan guy, because I have another daughter in Michigan, right? So I'm, I follow them a lot. And the, the title of the book was, Am I Being Too Subtle? You know, it, was, it was written by Sam Zell, who just died. He was this you know, huge real estate investor, a very controversial guy. So that, that, that's what I think of. You don't want to be too subtle. You don't want to be a jerk, but you don't want to be subtle. Um, can, I, can I say something extremely politically incorrect? Right now? You guys have thick enough skin to say this? <coughs> so in, in the Harvard um, uh, lawsuit, uh, which, which was brought by an Asian American student, they, they rested a, a lot of, the lawsuit was based on Harvard's, um, I guess their personal qualities rating. And there seemed to be a real bias against Asian Americans. It wasn't just Asian Americans, but there seemed to be a real bias against Asian Americans for being too quiet and, and, not, and not being, uh, not ha being effusive with, with, with their personalities, as, you know, culturally, right? Which a person I have not found to be the case, but I, I'm aware that that's, you know, that's um, one of the stereotypes. So, <coughs> so I've had many um, Asian kids, um, I, I, you know, I guess they're in Little Neck. I, I have a client who just hired me. The parents are from China, and the kid's in ninth grade. And they came right out and said, you know, we interviewed a lot of other uh, college advisors. And, and you know, she, she went to Cornell. She's a doctor at Cornell, and, and he's, he graduated from the University of Chicago for, for grad school, but they're, they're Chinese nationals. And they said flat out, we don't want him to seem too Chinese. And I said, well, first of all, I was like, you know, it's horrible, you know. I think, you know, that, but then I understood because that's the stereotype that I think um, a lot of admissions officers, we we think a lot of admissions officers have. So, and, and I don't think him is particularly stereotypical at, at all. I mean, he's got, you know, many different interests, just like any other Jewish kid or any other, you know, um, someone from another ethnicity. But the um, they told me the tendency is to be um, understated and not um, advocate, you know, for for yourself. So, so I would even argue that if you were an Asian American applicant, being a little on the extreme would 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 actually stand out more, you know, for for you know someone with your background compared to someone with you know someone else's background, you know. So, I, I definitely would not. Um, you want to put your best foot forward. You don't want to fight with one hand tied behind your back. That's 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 my be my best advice. But you have to have a a feel for you know how it's going to come across or not. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Are you asking about the question about your ethnicity? Your highest educational degree? And then my husband, and then I feel like there's a bias against having a high education because they want to feel like. Yeah, is there a bias against parents who are, who are educated? Can I omit it? And would that look even worse? Well, so here, here's something that's a little murky about the, about the process. So, so the question is when they ask all these background questions, they still ask about race on the common application, too. They do, right. So, so apparently, um, and, and I, I haven't figured out if I believe this or not, because I'm so cynical. 
But apparently, on, on the common application when they ask you about race, colleges are now no longer downloading that information. It just goes to the common app and they're not reading it. Or they've come out and said that. I don't believe it for sure, but um, <coughs> but here's the reason why I don't think it's it's it's, def it's necessarily BS, is because they don't want to get sued, because now it's it's the law of the land that they can't discriminate on the basis of race. So what they can do is come up with other proxies for race, like you know income level or zip code or parents' education level maybe or, or you know things like that. But those aren't perfect either. So, um, yeah, I think in, in, in a, on a question like that, if you're sort of superstitious about it, I would probably not answer it. The education, yeah. Any of those questions, but, but the education question. <laughs> well, what, you know, what they're, what they're trying to do is to um, come up with first generation students, you know, people who. who um, yeah, but I don't, I think you have to answer those questions. Though. I don't know, I don't know. It, you don't, it's not one of those red starred questions where you have to answer it. Yeah, yeah so I, I would leave it up to you. I mean, if you, if. Yeah, I think that um, in general, those questions don't really make that much of a difference. I will tell you this though: the, the contra argument is that colleges need affluent families because at any given college, roughly 25%, only 25%, but roughly 25 will pay full price. So, and they are more likely to give merit aid, which I want to talk about, to, um, to families who are not going to qualify for need-based aid. So they don't ne necessarily need to know whether you qualify or not from, from those questions, but they will back into it based on whether you're applying for need-based aid, what zip code you live in, um, if, you, if you apply your tax returns and all that type of stuff. So it actually might help in a, in a, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, what I said was most of the merit aid that goes out there, not so there's different types of financial aid. There's need-based aid, which is based on your income, your savings, et cetera. There's merit aid, which is basically based on how much a college wants you. It can be mostly for grades and scores, but it's not always. <clears throat> and then there's sort of tax strategies, which are mostly for self-employed uh, people. <clears throat> but on the merit aid, colleges would rather give you know, $20,000 off to a family that they know can come up with the rest, the other 60 or, you know, whatever it is, than a family that still won't be able to come. So, so they skew the merit aid offers toward affluent families. Well, education doesn't necessarily correlate to affluence at all, actually. Um, <clears throat> I, I know many people are very highly educated who are, you know, barely uh, scrap, scraping by. But by the way, and I also know, you know, this is professionally, but also personally, people who, who are totally uneducated, who didn't, you know, didn't barely finish high school, who are, you know, multimillionaires and even a couple of billionaires. So, so that's a whole other topic, you know, how, how much does any of this stuff really matter? But that's a big one, yeah. But um, yeah, I think um, as a, you know, they're going to look at your zip code. They're going to look at the fact that, um, you know, you go to a private school, although there are scholarship opportunities at a lot of private schools. 
you know, the, the ch chances are that that you'll be attractive for married age just based on a little bit that you've you've said. Yeah. Okay, Question. Competitive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so we're seg all right. So so let's can we get into the the money stuff now? The because I, I I need to, I need to wrap up. The, okay. So so hold that question because that that's a big one. That was a big change this year. We'll do two more admissions questions and then we'll. Recruiting for sports. So recruiting for sports is a uh, is a boost depending on the school depending on how good the kid is, et cetera, et cetera. But, but in general, college recruits, and you know, that means real recruits. It doesn't mean just, you know, I play a sport and, yeah. you know, et cetera. Um, w can get into top schools with slightly less uh, grades and scores. But they have to go through the regular admissions process. So, so they, they go through the regular, college recruits go through the regular admissions process. Um, however, some get, um, pre-reads and, and different treatment, you know, ahead of time to figure out whether it's worth pursuing. But some schools, um, some coaches have, have hardly any say in it. Like, like at MIT, if, if a coach recruits someone, at best they have a 50% chance of getting in there. Whereas, um, you know, I went to Wesleyan and I played basketball and the guy was like, okay, I get five guys a year. If you want to be one of them, you know, let me know. And I'm like, okay. So that was how I went to college. You know, I applied to one school, and that's you know, I, it, it kind of works that way in, in in general with a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the D3 and some of the Ivy type schools, but you still have to go through the whole process. But you usually know early on whether you're going to be in or not, because they look at your transcripts um, and everything else, <coughs> your scores. You know, there's there's some kids. I had, I had a Garden City client who, who played the cross a few years ago who was being recruited by Harvard, and she was told flat out, I need you to get a 33 when she was in 10th grade in order to solidify your spot uh, on the team because the Ivies have a, they average the uh, grades and scores of everyone on the team. It's called an, an academic index where they balance everyone so they know who they can recruit and who they, they can't only recruit ringers who tend to have lower grades and lower scores. Yeah, so it usually happens earlier. Question? Yeah, just one question on that. You said, like, the admissions uh, person has, like, eight minutes. What is the general, like, advice that you give to kids on how to pick their letters of recommendation? Is there anything that you think um, really works better? Or? Yeah, okay, so the question on letters of recommendation. So, so I think letters of recommendation are becoming a little bit less important in general because pretty much every one is glowing. You know, it's very hard to get a bad letter of recommendation. They become meaningless. But, you know, generally it's common sense stuff. You know, you want to have, um, <coughs> you know, most colleges want two letters of recommendation. You want to have them both in a core class, you know, not an elective. And you want them to be able to say things about your intellectual curiosity, your work ethic, how you get along well with others, you know, things like, things like that. Initiative, character uh, type stuff. And they usually get a form to fill out where they will say, oh, this is, you know, um, um, this kid is in the top 50% of kids I've ever, uh, I've ever had in class. So this one's in the top 
20 percent. You know, this is one of the best I've ever seen. You know, that, so they, so they, um, <coughs> they're they're really asked to compare them to other kids that they've had. Yeah. See you later. Okay. 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 Good. So, all right, let's go through the um, the financial aid stuff real quick, and then um, I, have, I have business cards here. If anyone wants to get in touch with us, I'll just I'll just leave them here. So, <coughs> um, for financial aid, okay. So, so there's there's three. See you later. There's 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 three uh, sort of systems to get money for college. There's need-based aid, which you know, a lot of our clients don't qualify for, which is based on your income and a bunch of other factors. And there there were actually massive changes this year that we're right in the middle of, and one of them has to do with siblings in college at the same time, which I'm not happy about. Um, and then there are, um, I mean, it doesn't really matter because you, know, you may not qualify anyway, but but. Um, so uh, and then there's merit aid, which I talked about before. That's generally about <coughs> matching kids up with schools that will roll out the red carpet for them. Co and, and some colleges are more generous than others with both types of money, and some are not generous at all. So in general, the, the colleges that are, that are generous tend to be private colleges with super high sticker prices as opposed to state universities, and that's either in or out of the state of New York um, because state universities just don't have money. Not, it's not a um, it's not necessarily a judgy thing, but the private colleges, the average discount at a private college is more than 56 percent, five six, the average. So what that means is paying full price is a choice. It is not an option. You know, it, it's it's about your what pond you fish in, where where you apply to college, and where and where and how do you stack up. You know, most of the elite colleges don't offer any merit aid. They only offer need-based aid. <coughs> so that's the Ivies and schools like Stanford and Duke. And uh, for the most part, it's, it's either impossible or very, very close to impossible to get merit aid at those colleges, unless you're a recruited athlete, <coughs> for example. Um, so in terms of how it all works, so er every college has a system to apply for aid. Even if you're not going to qualify for need-based aid, you, you know, you may, maybe you actually know or maybe you think you know, um, you might have a situation where the colleges that you're applying to, maybe one or two of them, still want your financial aid applications in order, in order to consider you for merit aid, which has nothing to do with your income and your savings and all that. So locally, Fordham and NYU are two of those colleges where you still have to submit the financial aid applications. And every college in the country takes the FAFSA, this, the um, free application for federal student aid that is going under a two, two years as of two years ago they announced that they were going to be overhauling it <coughs> and this is the first year where they're actually going to have a streamlined quote unquote streamlined FAFSA although it means fewer questions but there's more sub questions so I don't really know how streamlined it's going to be we haven't seen it yet because it's not out it's supposed to come out by the end of the year usually October is when they're is when they are released but um, we don't know exactly when it's coming out. Um, the deadlines to file applications vary from college to college. So there's no universal deadline to file. That, that's a big question we get all the time. You, you want to look at each college on your list and look at their priority financial aid deadlines, which will vary from, from school to school. So if you're applying you know, early decision to a college or early action to a college, for you know, for admissions, that might be November one or, or something, but the 
financial aid priority deadline might be a week later. You don't want to miss a priority deadline for financial aid. Um, many colleges, oh, one sec. Many colleges, not all, take an additional financial aid application called the CSS profile. That's mostly private colleges that, that require this. And the difference between the two is the, the FAFSA used to be about 100 questions. Now it's going to be fewer, but with more sub-questions. So I don't know exactly how many it's going to be this year. The CSS profile is anywhere from 200 to 300 questions, depending on what colleges you're applying to, because some colleges have extra questions, supplemental questions. And that, that is a really hard form. The FAFSA may look relatively straightforward, but the profile is pretty hard. Um, my, my wife does that in our practice. She probably does financial aid applications for like 400 people a year or something ridiculous like that. She works like a like a farm animal. <laughs> she's 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 very diligent. I would not be I would not be good at doing that stuff. And um, um, <coughs> so 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 you <coughs> you figure out when you apply, when you need to apply. What what our, our my tip is this is what my wife does is she'll figure out the earliest possible deadline and then file them all. So you don't have to worry about anything else. But after you file, and this is important too, and this is something you, you'll never hear, um, after you file is almost when it starts. It's not, you're not, so, so in other words, if you file a tax return to the IRS, you're done, right? You, you dump all your junk on, a, on an accountant and you're like here, and then he like type, you know, does a tax return, you look at it, you're like, okay, uh, you know, and then, and then you're done. Well, if you're applying to 12 or 15 colleges, it's like applying to 12 or 15 IRSs. There's, there's a lot of questions that come back from most, of, maybe all, but most of those colleges after you file. So that means you have to monitor your emails, and frequently that means the kids' emails, because they are also part of this process, and we probably all know how bad kids are at looking at email. So, <coughs> um, so it's not over when you file, and then after you get an award, I would always recommend that you try to improve that award. And you can sometimes play colleges off against each other. If one college that, you know, that um, gave a better offer than the other, I love trying to negotiate that. Um, if you've had some kind of, you know, if you had some sort of story um, that doesn't fit in the boxes of these financial aid applications. So it doesn't have to be something extreme, but we, we see everything in our, we, you know, I have a really weird business. So we see everything. So we've had, um, unfortunately, we've had uh, three clients pass away in the last six months. And the financial aid applications are based on income from two years prior. So if you have someone graduating in 2025, it's based on your 2023 income. So if something in the ensuing years happens, they wouldn't know about it. Um, it could be a loss of a job, you know, loss of income some other way if you own a business. It could be, you know, who knows, a, a, a crazy, medical, uh, crazy medical expenses or legal expenses if you get divorced or something. So you, you always have the opportunity after you file and get an award to then appeal and tell them about these other circumstances. Did you have a question? Yep. Um, will you hit one of them with um, the negotiating Yep. So, so that is a good question. I'm going to give you the other book. There's only four people here, but yeah. See? Does she win a lot of stuff in general? 
He's like, Mom. Um, so the question was, in terms of the timing of the FAFSA and early action and all that, um, I guess, what's the impact, right? So, <coughs> so let me make a couple comments. So, so early decision um, is binding, but it's actually not binding. So I can I can talk about that if you want to hear about that. Early action is des was designed ostensibly by the colleges to help you find out earlier if you if you get in or not. I just have to sit down. I had a rough day on the golf course today. A little, little tired. Uh, um, so, so the whole theory of early action was you apply early and then you find out, you know, in December. Um, what actually happened in the last two years was that colleges were inundated with so many applications, mostly because of test optional, that they couldn't even read, you know, half of the applications that came in early. So they ended up deferring between 50 to 80% of the applications until March or April. So it was even more stressful. It didn't, re it didn't re alleviate the stress. It became more stressful. <laughs> so so um, in terms of the financial aid impact of, you know, when do you find out your award, I think for the most part, people are going to be filing their FAFSAs in January, and they may not get a, financial aid, a final financial aid offer until March. But the colleges, th there's, <laughs> there's a lot of scrambling behind the scenes for colleges right now because they are not equipped to handle all the new software junk that has to be done behind the scenes. They, they have to train everyone on the new stuff. They, they don't have the budget to hire new people. You know, so there's, there's going to be a lot of mistakes, I think, and a lot of um, scrambling behind the scenes. And th in contrast, there's about 400 colleges that, that not only require the FAFSA, but they also require that CSS profile. Um, financial aid application, those are going in on the regular time frame. So our guess, and this is just a guess, is that um, if you apply early decision somewhere, so this won't, so for you guys for 2025 kids it won't, it won't matter so much, but for you it will matter. If you apply early decision somewhere um, and you get in and you get a financial aid award based on this, assuming you apply to a CSS profile college, that'll sort of be conditional subject to reviewing the FAFSA once that comes out a couple months later, and then they'll revise it if they have to. It's a mess. Yeah. Advantage to applying for financial aid early? Um, I don't think, okay, so the question is about applying early or, or for admission and possibly financial aid. I don't think there's any advantage to applying early action. I do think there's an advantage to applying early decision. There's no proven, um, there, yeah. There's no proven statistics that that show that applying early action helps. Colleges want to put the pressure on you to apply because they need their numbers to increase every year, or they try to get more applications every year. So they make all kinds of, you know, f uh, half statements like. Um, you have a better chance at, you know, at, at uh, merit scholarships if you apply early, you know, and it, 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 you don't. I would do it though from the sorry, I would do it just from the standpoint of getting it over with. I mean, and, and maybe superstition. I would just get everything done. But I don't, I don't think it's, so. There's no disadvantage to it, but I don't think there's any advantage to it. No disadvantage. No disadvantage. Only upside, no downside to applying early. Yeah. Question. 
Okay, so <clears throat> so there's early action, which you can apply to many colleges that you want. It's not binding and it doesn't help. And then there's early decision, which is, yeah, and there, there are other um, similar types of applying early, like restricted early action um, and other things. So <clears throat> the, the what, what you hear at your high school is that if you apply early decision and they let you in, you have to go. The reality is you can get out of it. And, and this is, one of, again, one of these areas where I uh, get really mad at guidance counselors about. <clears throat> so w one reason that um, you can get out is because if your son or your daughter you know, signs an early decision agreement, it doesn't matter because they're not of the age of majority. They can't form a contract. So that's stupid. The second, I mean, it is. The second thing is, you know, right in the early decision agreement, it says, and I'm paraphrasing, if you get in and we let you in, um, you're obligated to come unless the financial aid offer does not make it um, possible for you, or it's not adequate or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And there's no objective standard that you have to meet. You just have to say, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, I didn't get enough aid, and then maybe they'll give you more, maybe they won't, and then once the dust settles, you decide, but you can get out of it. And, and the third reason is just, you know, come on, like, what, you know, what college can force you to go there and pay a certain amount of money? It's, like, it's the dumbest thing. But <coughs> the, the, the reason that um, you'll never hear that from your guidance counselor at a private school or a public school is because they're worried that if you get in and then you decline, then you're going to taint next year's kids somehow you know and, and be blackballed or something which is not a you problem it's a you know unless you have a, young, a younger kid in the same district but but it's it, it doesn't work that way like you know every every um, client I've ever had and it's probably been at least 10 over the years that have done that every time the college after, after they asked to be released they're like, yeah, no problem. You know, it's, it's so uneventful. They don't, they don't care because most elite schools can fill their class over like three times with qualified kids. Yeah, question. Uh, do you see early decision two also the same benefit as early decision one? So, right. So the question is, early decision two is that the is that as helpful as early decision one? So first of all, I don't think early decision one is as beneficial as people think it is because in that in those statistics that they report, there's a lot of self-selection in there. So some of the categories I talked about before, recruited athletes, um, you know, uh, legacies, people who, whose per, uh, parents are professors at that school, people who get letters from trustees and boards of director people, which is significant. Like those are all, they have to be early decision already. So if, you, so if you're not in those categories, it still helps you get in, but not as much as the, as the gross, um, I think gross numbers uh, indicate. And then when it comes to ED1 versus ED2, so early decision two is um, most of those deadlines are in January or, de or December, and they're designed to pick up the kids who didn't get an ED early decision one, which, and, they find, and they find out like December 15th when school is out and they can't talk to anyone, which, which is horrible. So um, I think early decision two helps. I think in most colleges it doesn't help as much as early decision one, but some schools are notorious for, uh, like Tulane, is notorious for all the kids who applied early action for contacting them around December 15th and saying, hey, do you want to switch to the early decision two? Your chances of getting in and getting money are a lot, are a lot greater. But um, for the most part, colleges are, are kind of murky on um, 
I'm breaking out the stats of how much ED1 impacts your chances versus ED2. So I don't really know. I just suspect that ED1 is the way to go. Yep. You then, yeah. I yeah. Well, I had heard, again, this could be like a dead rumor mill, but yeah. a friend who had seniors and kids in college ready had said they strongly recommend not ever doing early decision because once you kind of lock yourself in binding, that the schools don't really have much incentive to give you financial aid because, well, you've already kind of agreed that right, you're going there. So, what's, so in other words, I have a very good friend who says the school gave them nothing. Her son was admitted to Villanova. She really kind of felt stuck. Her husband was all pissed at her, like, why would you do this, you know, stupid early decision? Now we're not getting any money, and yeah. that's it. They're paying, like, a full, full tuition, and she's yeah. like, I would never do this with my second son ever again. So, um, yeah, that, that's a good question. The question is you know, about early decision and um, affecting your, your financial aid package. So, <coughs> so it, it, I, don't, I don't think that's urban legend or, or rumor mill, but we all have a tendency, including me, to try to come up with one reason why, you know, to explain something, like why they didn't get money from Villanova. There could have been other reasons, like they make too much income to be considered, and, you know, there's, you know, ch chances are that there's other reasons why they didn't get any money. Th that being said, I don't, j just, from, just from an academic perspective or an abstract perspective, I don't like the idea of not having any other offers to use to, to play off against each other. So, um, you know, so Villanova competes with whatever, Boston College and maybe Fairfield or, you know, there's a whole range of other, of the, uh, the Holy Twelve, that's what I call them, the, the Holy Twelve colleges. So, um, so I don't love ED for financial aid purposes, but in many cases it, it's just obvious because we can figure this out before you, anyone applies whether they're going to qualify or not. So once we can figure out whether they qualify and what a fair award should be, or, the, or they're not going to get any money at all, or, or something else, then that can kind of inform th that decision about whether it makes sense to apply early decision or not. But I, I think in, in um, overall, I do think that colleges will give a, it may be a low, but it's not necessarily a low ball. Award. I, mean, I think I think it could be a, f a fair award if you apply early decision, but you don't have much upside of of improving it without other offers. So I don't think you get totally stiffed going early decision. Okay. Yeah. So uh, sorry. So for legacy and early decision, I think in order to benefit from legacy you need to demonstrate that's your top choice school. And I don't think that's like a proven, you know, rule, but it's a common sense rule that I've heard over and over again from, you know, I'm, I'm, pre I'm pretty friendly with a guy who was on the admissions committee of Princeton for 30 years, and I talked to him probably three or four times a year, and uh, th that's something he's said to me for sure. It's not going to help you if you don't apply early decisions. Yeah, legacy is supposed to mean immediate family. Sometimes it means more, you know, another generation. Overall, though, it's it's becoming less important at most colleges. So it's not it's not as helpful as it was like like last year. It wasn't so. I don't think it was so helpful overall. Um, and this year, who knows? Yeah. Question. Like, do most people do early action? Do most people do early action? Because um, that's just applying early. Right. Yeah. So so. 
you know, I said before, I have a really weird business. Like, you know, in, in, in areas like Manhattan and Roslyn and Jericho and whatever, I, I tend to attract like the, you know, high achieving, you know, like parents who feel like they need to hire a college advisor in utero, you know, or otherwise they're late, right? <laughs> so in normal parts of the country, um, you know, people do things a lot uh, later in, in time. So <clears throat> I think in the Manhattan's of the world, more people will do early action than the Sheboygan, Wisconsin's of the world. Right, right. Yeah, but I don't know. But I don't know how much it helps. There, so, so I'm a big fan of getting it all done over the summer, and right. then, and then you can, because senior year is hard. Like right. people don't understand that senior year is actually harder than junior year. And everyone that I've been warning since like June, like you got to get this done, you got to get this done, you got to get this done. Who didn't? They're like, you know, they want to like curl up in a fetal position right, right now because teachers don't care. You know, so. I think I think the most important reason to go early is because you just want to get it off your plate. Um, but most people, I don't know if most people apply early action. I don't, I don't think they do, but they should. But if you don't get into early action, do you roll into the regular admission? Well, so what I was saying before was for early action is that the last couple of years, 50 to 80 percent of the kids who applied early action were deferred into the regular oh, pool. Okay. Yeah, um, but if right. you because they couldn't review all the applications. So, um, I, you know, normally, or quote unquote, normally what, what happens is if you apply early action, you're either deferred or denied or admitted. But this past year, there was, in two, this past three years, there were rampant deferrals because of the, in, the influx of applications. Yeah, question. Um, yeah, most admissions officers are on the road right now trying to recruit applications to get in. And then once those application deadlines occur, that's when they start hunkering down, you know, for the, uh, for the season. So which how do they determine which order to review the application? Um, I think the, determining the order of, w of which to review is, y it's basically, um, you know, by, by deadline, first of all, and then they usually, so all the November 1 deadlines, and then within that pool of people who are applying November 1, I don't know if there's any published um, uniform way that they, that they decide which ones to read first. And it doesn't really matter because they're, they're, they're not giving out spots first come, first served. At most of the elite schools, what happens is there's someone who sort of makes the first pass at the applications, and makes a recommendation. They pass it on to, to the next the next person who reads the application again. And if that's someone that they think should be admitted, then it goes to the committee, um, and then they and then they decide. So you it's not a speed thing. You mentioned a lot of them don't get read because they were like so many of them. So those people who don't who didn't get read, they were disadvantaged because they were deferred. Right? So yeah. So so. So, early, early, so I was just describing, I guess, more early decision than, than early action. The people who didn't get read, it's, it's neutral it does, because they will get their applications read. It's just that they're going to be in the regular pool. Yeah, but they don't have the uh, advantage? No, there's no advantage. Yeah, early decision gives you some advantage, just not as much as what's published. 
but if you apply early action, there doesn't there doesn't seem to be any advantage. Yeah. Um, so you apply early decision to one to, to one school, and that's usually November one or November fifteenth, somewhere around there, and then you don't find out until usually December fifteenth or maybe a little earlier. But by then, by the time you find out, all the other early decision one deadlines have passed because those are generally the month before. So so you you do have the opportunity to apply early decision two to um, another college if you didn't get an early decision one to that college. Right. So, so the so the three changes this year um, on the financial aid formulas that are there's more than three, but the three big ones are for the for the, the these are all for the FAFSA, not not necessarily the the other form. Is that um, one of them eliminated the quote unquote sibling discount? So so under the old rules, <coughs> you know, if you made a certain amount of money and you had one kid in college, they would say, okay your expected family contribution, the number that we think that you can afford to pay is, you know, $80,000. And if you had two kids in college and everything else was the same, same income, same savings, et cetera, then your expected family contribution would be cut to $40,000. So that all of a sudden you've doubled your eligibility by having two kids in college. So I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but, but that is now officially gone. I do think it's going to be a, a something that, that a lot of families can appeal, um, particularly if they are at a, at a private school that takes the CSS profile. So I don't think it's like the death knell, you know, for sibling uh, having siblings in the school. But that that was one of the most annoying uh, changes. It it so it depends on where. So it's like a school like Villanova. I don't think it would be affected because they're a private college that takes the CSS profile. So it, it really depends on where you apply to college. Like that, so, so figuring out your college list is probably going to be more important this year for financial aid than it ever was. Yeah. And there's also, you know, for divorced families, they changed those rules a little bit to, to, to um, in a way that I think is going to negatively affect um, divorced families. And then there was also a change for business owners uh, in terms of how to value your business. So there's a few other changes too. They're mostly bad, a couple of good ones. Yep. So, like, I heard from other people, like, a good way to sell them, but then you haven't got, like, your guided towards a certain, like, pursuit, let's say, like, if you like business, so, like, you show through your extracurricular and through your essay that you're going towards, like, this, would you say that if you have extracurriculars that don't fall into that route, you shouldn't include it? So it's, like, taking away from your focus? Um. All right, that, I'm going to wrap up with this. With this. That, that's a great question. Uh, I don't have any more prizes, but if I did, you would get one. Um, can you give her half the book? <laughs> split, split the verbs and the, and the nouns. Yeah. Um, so <coughs> this again, I, I start off by saying some of the stuff out of my mouth might not make, you know, may not um, agree with other stuff that you may may have heard from guidance counselors or whatever. This is one of them. I, l I look at each, I'm, a, I'm like a marketing guy trapped in a college advisor's body. I, th I, th I know it's creepy sounding, but that's, I'm always looking at, um, you know, uh, what, what story are you trying to tell? L that's sort of your question. What story are you trying to tell 
with your application. So your question was, you know, if I'm interested in business, is it okay to have, you know, should all my extracurriculars be business or is it okay to have other things that are not necessarily business related? <coughs> so um, I, I'm a big believer that on one hand, your, your entire application from uh, the classes you've taken, your extracurriculars, your essays, stuff you've done out of school, you know, whatever, should have what I call a thread of continuity. That, that kind of, you know, you can, you can kind of um, see the, the, um, the story. But that doesn't mean that you need to be, it, it, I think it's kind of weird for a, you know, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid to be so laser focused on what they want to do with the rest of their lives because there are 50-year-olds who haven't figured it out yet also. So I, I would encourage um, you and anybody to explore as much stuff as, as you reasonably can that, that, that's not necessarily career-related. <coughs> However, when, you know, if you are applying as a, as a business student or interested in business, your application can't be absent of that. It's got it's to show some depth in, in an area or two um, that's, that is related to what you're majoring in. By the way, it's also okay to, be, go, to go undecided to, to college, right? I, so you're not asking me that, but that's, um, I think 80% of kids change majors. You so, well, if you're applying, does it give you an edge? Is that, is that the question? Yeah. So, yeah, so so if you're applying to like you know like a Wharton or uh, Michigan Ross or NYU Stern or whatever, you're competing with people who have, you know, I, I've I've one client um, who I've been working with since 10th grade, who took like a little sneaker trading business, you know, he would just buy and sell on eBay or something, and now it's like it does half a million dollars a year, right? And and that's that's the type of kid who gets into Wharton because he's showing this commitment. But he also has other stuff. He does a lot of charity stuff. He does, you know, stuff that's not business per se. So I, I do think you need to have some standout stuff that supports like you don't want to say I want to be I want to be a doctor, then you've got nothing in your background that that, that indicates that. You do need to have stuff that, that gives your application some depth, but it doesn't have to be two dimensional at all. All right. So let me wrap up here. If you guys want to get in touch with me, my business cards are right here. Um, thanks. The great questions that actually made it fun for me. So uh, thanks for coming, and I hope I hope you got some good information. Thank you. All right, you are welcome. Thanks for listening to the College Planning Edge podcast. For more information about our Inner Circle Group Coaching Membership, which is a great way to dip your toes in the water of the whole college planning morass, um, and get access to our double secret software, College Guru software that helps you create a strategic list of colleges and identify fat, juicy merit aid and need-based aid opportunities, as well as some other benefits, check out the Lockwood Inner Circle at lockwoodinnercircle.com and use the coupon code podcast for 50% off the first month's membership. Thanks for listening.